Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there. Welcome to Coindesk TV. You're watching The Hash, your favorite TV show on Coindesk TV. We're here. I'm Zach Seward. We've got Jensen Assey. We've got Will Foxley. We're in the three box. You know it's going to be fun. All right. I'm starting this thing off. Let's go to Washington. Our friend Jay Powell is out here on his day two of congressional testimony, softening his stance a little bit and Bitcoin responding in kind. Let's hear what he had to say a bit earlier today. We have not made any decision about the March meeting. We're not going to do that until we see the, the additional data. Larger point, though, is that we're not on a preset path and that we will be guided by the incoming data and the evolving outlook. So there it is, the orange coin, which was meant to subvert the influence of federal governments everywhere, is responding accordingly and is north of 22,000. Yeah, that's what the orange coin does these days. It responds to Jay Powell's comments about the state of the economy. So I'm going to toss this to Will, get historical here. What do you think about Bitcoin in the macroeconomic context, especially in the wake of these comments from Jerome Powell up on Capitol Hill? Yeah, I mean, history kind of repeated itself, right? Uh, We've always seen that Bitcoin has been moving in line with any pronouncement from the Federal Reserve. And you might think that that's like a recent trend, but it really isn't, right? So since 2010 or so, we've seen that the Federal Reserve has been moving into quantitative easing. It paused doing that after the Great Recession and sort of just moved into like this 0% interest rate regime where anyone can sort of boot up a business because it's really cheap to get credit. There's a lot of tech startups that got hot. Bitcoin grew up in that environment. It got hot in the environment of tech stocks going to the moon. And then since 2020, when the Fed moved into like this very aggressive posturing due to the COVID pandemic and then the post-recession fears, we've seen Bitcoins be basically lockstep with tech stocks also, right? So whenever the Fed says that we're going to raise interest rates, Bitcoin goes down. It did go down Monday. Tech stocks also go down. Whenever the Fed says they're going to pause and maybe not increase as much, we see things rally. And that's why a lot of people right now think that 22,000 Bitcoin mark is a little bullish. Some people think it's a bear trap because the Fed has sort of been saying that we're not going to raise much more. We're at about 5%. It's time to pause. But then all of a sudden, the Fed can pivot, right? And we are seeing this right now of Jerome Powell. They said in their earlier comments, hey, we're going to go up. We're going to go up another 50 bips instead of 25 bips. Well, he pivoted. And now he's saying like, hey, we're actually probably going to increase and go even more. And that is catching a lot of these stocks off track. And they're being very volatile in the wake of that. And that's what we've seen with Bitcoin, where it went down a lot yesterday. And now it's kind of going back up, went up like 200 bucks. Tech stocks and the like are doing similar. So very similar, just like from a historical perspective. 
Jen, I'm going to throw this over to you. Any thoughts on our favorite orange coin this morning? Well, for me, this is just continues the road to boring story, right? The crypto markets are so closely correlated to the equities market. Will, I think you did a really good job at just giving us the history and laying that down. For me, I wish Adam was on the show today. I like how do we make sense of what's actually going to happen if one day we hear one thing and markets react, and then the next day we hear Powell come out and say, actually, no, that we're not even no, that's not going to happen or that might not happen. Just we're interpreting his comments as a little bit softer than yesterday's and the markets react. How do we know what's going to happen? Well, I don't know if you have any thoughts or comments on that, or do we just not know? Do we continue to interpret the things in the news and watch the markets go up and down? Rule number one on the hash, don't make a price prediction. We don't do that here, but I will because <laughs> Crypto Wendy is not on the show today. I, I think it's anyone's guess, right? Like We have to know what the Fed is going to do in order for like tech stocks or Bitcoin, other cryptos to know like where they're going to trend. The Fed has been saying that they want to get to 5% and then sort of reconsider things based on the facts. And those facts really are unemployment. Do they care if unemployment's higher or lower? Will they really want unemployment to actually be higher? That shows that the markets are sort of cooling off and inflation is cooling off. They sort of link unemployment and inflation very closely. And so far, unemployment numbers have continued to be very strong, meaning most people are still employed. And the Fed has been looking at it and been like, hey, this doesn't really make sense. If we're in an inflationary environment, then we probably want to see unemployment go up. And they're, they're going to keep pushing that federal funds rate higher until they see a breaking in unemployment rate where unemployment actually starts to go back up towards historical norms. Right now, it's below historical norms. And I think for Bitcoin, if you're going to extrapolate from there, that just means like there's probably more pressure on Bitcoin to go down as opposed to up in the short term. But if you're going to make that decision, that's your problem. That's not mine. We do not do financial advice on the hat. Unless Wendy's corner, you know, Wendy could give price advice all she wants. Zach, over to you. Yeah, Will, I really liked your like broader historical scope there, right? Like Bitcoin, it is a comment on macroeconomic realities, right? Like Chancellor on the brink of second bailout is literally there in that first mint, right? So like the fact that this is sort of founded by and for macroeconomic nerds continues to be a reality, whether it's in a period of quantitative easing or in a period of more aggressive rate hikes, right? So, you know, I think that zooming out to that sort of historical context was really important. A fine Will's history corner to start the week for me, buddy. Mm. All right, let's change gears. Mm. I think you have our next story. We're going to take it to Silvergate Bank, which has certainly been distressed of late. What do you got? That's right. We're talking about Silvergate. Silvergate's been having some problems ever since FTX exploded and the general crypto market went down. According to a new report from Bloomberg, they have been talking with FDIC about potentially salvaging the bank, including getting a line of credit from other crypto investors in the space. It's a pretty big knock for Silvergate, which of course has been going through the throes as FTX, one of its largest users, was wiped out in November after it filed for Chapter 11. And then over the last few weeks, we've seen a bunch of different companies decide to move away from Silvergate, including the likes of Gemini and Coinbase. Silvergate was known for being one of the few crypto-friendly banks, and a lot of crypto companies took advantage of that with billions of dollars of liquidity flowing into the La Jolla-based bank. But it's going to dire straits. Seems like if the token goes down 90%, so do the banks. And we might see one of the first wipeouts for the crypto banks out there. Zach, I want to throw this one over to you. You did a lot of editorial coverage on crypto banks over your years at Coindesk. What's your take on Silvergate and everything going on there? Yeah, it's a dicey situation, right? They're one of the few banks to serve the crypto industry early and often. I think a lot of people are hedging their bets, right? We've heard from various exchanges and various crypto firms who are saying, you know, out of an abundance of caution, we're establishing 
other banking relationships beyond Silvergate, right? Signature, I think, is being the primary beneficiary of some of these moves. There's not really that many banks that serve the crypto industry. So for Silvergate to be potentially in trouble is something that is worrisome for a lot of industry participants. And I think like it is important to remember that whether it's real or not, this idea of Operation Choke Point 2.0 unfolding behind the scenes with this pronouncement from banking regulators at the federal level is something that is a broader fear that people in the industry are also worried about, right? If the U.S. government can sort of stifle crypto innovators in the U.S. by limiting their access to banking services, that's something that becomes sort of a weapon in the regulatory push to both crack down, clamp down, and potentially expel some of these crypto companies from the U.S. itself. So I think that is really important to keep in mind in the background here is that you know if this longstanding partner of the crypto industry in Silvergate is crippled or can no longer continue, that's a problem. But additionally, there, there may be signs, again, with this joint pronouncement in January, that those who would rush to fill that void may no longer be able to do so simply because it's too risky of a proposition relative to their relationship with federal regulators. So I think that's sort of the subtext of what's going on here. The fact that they're reportedly working with FDIC to figure out what comes next probably isn't comforting to a lot of people who are doing their banking through Silvergate. So it's going to be interesting to see if this comes to pass, if this really pans out, but certainly more troubling signs for Silvergate and those who do the banking there. Interesting to watch. Jen, what do you think? Yeah, it will be interesting to see if there are any crypto firms that are able to come to the table here and help Silvergate raise some funds so that they can up their liquidity. This is based on a story by Bloomberg. And this morning on Bloomberg TV, they said that if this was put into receivership, this would be the biggest bank failure the FDIC would have to deal with since 2010. So I think that gives us a little bit of context as to maybe why the FDIC is stepping in here to help them raise some money and keep this bank afloat. If we put it into context with some of the numbers, Silvergate has more than $10 billion of assets. They reported a $1 billion loss in the fourth quarter last year. That's when the FTX bankruptcy kind of all started to unfold. And if we compare that to their average profit per year before that, that was at $40 million a year. So they are definitely in dire straits. We can definitely see why the FDIC would step in here. And I don't know, Zach, I'm very curious if they will be able to raise enough money to increase their liquidity and and remain a prominent bank in this space. I always think back to what Hester Peirce said at the beginning of this bear market, and it was maybe we should just let the companies that are going to die, die and see what is born from that. Will, what do you think? Yeah, to butcher a, a witty tweet on the topic I saw, which was that in 2010, crypto was born in order to take out the banks. And now we're actually doing that, right? A few years later, we're taking out the banks, but not in the way that we thought we were going to. A lot of these banks are now collapsing in on themselves. And I think, Jen, to your point, like this is only happening because a lot of these crypto exchanges and people who were using Silvergate, they don't need to necessarily, right? So I think they would be willing to put capital into Silvergate if they necessarily had to. But luckily, there are a few alternatives. The real worry here for me is what if those alternatives also collapse or choose not to work with crypto anymore. We've seen a few banks actually decide to do that over the last few years, a few months really, since Furious Capital, Terra Luna, FTX, they've decided they don't want to have any part of crypto. And so they decided just to move away from the industry entirely. The Silvergate incident is a little bit larger than that, right? A total collapse of a bank. I doubt we see another incident like that. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's other banks that decide like, hey, we have stable returns elsewhere. We have other clients. Why are we focusing on this very volatile part of the finance industry? It's not something that banks like to do anyways. So why cater to those people? 
I think we could see a future where there's more banks deciding not to work with crypto. And then we have more choking of these uh, cash flow points for all these larger crypto companies. Let's hopefully not see that come to fruition, though. Yeah, interesting times in the US as it relates to what crypto will look like here. I mean, this is a big one to watch. Calling all early stage crypto, blockchain, and Web3 startups, teams, and builders. Apply to Coindesk PitchFest, powered by Google Cloud, and pitch live on stage at Consensus in Austin this April. Winners will receive two VIP Piranha Passes to Consensus 2024, featured coverage on Coindesk, and an invitation to present at Coindesk's Private Investor Summit, Ideas 2023. Learn more and apply at consensus.coindesk.com slash pitchfest. We are going off to Coinbase land to learn about a wallet as a service offering that allows companies to build their own apps. I know it's been a long week. The exchange says the service could help bring the next 100 million customers into Web3 through seamless wallet onboarding. Zach, I'm going to toss this one off to you. You were at Ethereum. I can't speak English today. You were at ETH Denver and a lot of people were talking about account abstraction and smart contract wallets over all the days. Tell me about what you make of Coinbase getting into this. Yeah, we have SaaS, now we have WAS. So first of all, that's pretty cool. Second of all, I think this is important, right? Like a lot of people on the internet are real dummies, right? We lose our password, we request the password, we need help from our trusted intermediaries. And that I think has been a major thing that has slowed the adoption of actual on-chain crypto, right? Like it's your keys, it's your wallet, you need to take responsibility for that. What they're presenting here, Coinbase in this case, is saying, hey, like, through multi-party computation, which I'm going to kick to Will so you can explain the significance of MPC. Through MPC, we can make it so that should you like screw up your seed phrase, we can restore it in a way that is more familiar probably to most people's Web2 experiences, right? That I think is actually really, really fascinating and could be a major way for Coinbase to sort of further situate itself down the Web3 rabbit hole, right? Like we saw them, you know, embrace NFTs. We've seen them embrace self-custody wallets. We see them sort of, you know, really sort of walk in the talk when it comes to making the crypto economy more real than you're just having a customer relationship with a crypto exchange, right? So this, I think, is really an interesting development on their end to say, okay, we're, we're, we're launching a wallet as a service. And really, if we're talking about onboarding that next 100 million, whatever billion, you hear it all the time. If we're really talking about this, this might be a key tool for doing so. And I think that's actually really fascinating that they're taking that push upon themselves. But Will, I'll toss it to you for uh, tech thoughts and other things. Love that. Yeah, the MPC part of this is interesting. I didn't catch that. So glad you brought it up. And I'm not going to lie, it's a little confusing to see an MPC within this context. Or we should definitely go back to that subject if this comes up once again. MPC normally is used in the context of privacy, especially privacy coins. So Zcash famously had an MPC party where everyone was basically adding entropy or randomness into the Zcash code bank. And then when they did the party itself, they destroyed a lot of the randomness that people had created in order to create the protocol. And by using randomness and then destroying that randomness, you essentially have created some sort of like difficulty or more randomness within the protocol itself. And it makes it more secure or more private. It's a roundabout way of saying like, it's a cryptography thing. And we do cryptography things in crypto. As for the wall of the service stuff, that's actually really what I want to get into here. I think this is like a really overlooked part of crypto that's only going to become more important. And Zach, I think you're one of the first people who really brought that up to me is this wall as a service idea. 
the fact that Web3 is going to go through wallets. It's not going to go through your browser necessarily. You're going to use MetaMask or maybe a MetaMask alternative in a more powerful way. And then the bottom line of that, as a business side, these wallets are going to make money. MetaMask made a lot of money. I think 2021 had 200 million in revenue just from swaps, just from people using their wallet actively to trade. And that portion of money, like people are going to go for it, right? Because there's, there's not actually a lot of money in the service side of crypto. As much as like we like to think there is a lot of money in service side crypto, there often isn't. It's more about the tokens. It's more about the parties and the events and things. That might be where a lot of the revenue is generated. But these services often are just eking out a few percentage points here and there. And wallets are really a place where users can go and they often go and they spend money. And businesses are going to try to accrue that. I think Coinbase is smart for noticing that, going to develop some sort of system, some sort of business around that. So that's really what I saw when I saw this headline pop up this morning, a smart move from Coinbase once again, right after their recent news about launching Base, an L2 protocol on top of Ethereum to bring in more users. I think the combination of Base and this wallet as a service could really be powerful. Jen, I'll throw it over to you though for final thoughts. Yeah, I saw Zach's hand go up. So I'll take it super quick and then Zach, I'll give you final thoughts on this. So Coinbase was saying the service could be used by gaming apps where tokens or NFTs are part of the game or by companies that want to incorporate a wallet into an app. I think that like really enforces this idea that you're going to need your wallet to interact with Web3 apps and that wallet is going to need to be usable by people, right? People don't write down these like dozens of word phrases and remember them and it's hard. And then they lose access to their wallet and then they get you know turned off on Web3. And so I think that this is super super important. And the interoperability piece, you know, being able to use this wallet amongst all of the apps you interact with or all of the sites you interact with is also super important. I did an interview at ETH Denver with the folks from, from Soul Wallet, and they were talking about the social recovery piece, right? So another type of smart contract wallet where pieces of your seed frayed can be allocated to different people in your network, and those people can come together and help you recover that phrase should you lose access to your wallet. I think these types of solutions are so important to this onboarding of the next 100 million or, or billion users. And so we're going to see a lot of innovation on the wallet side. Zach, off to you for final words. I wanted to toss it back to you for final words. I just wanted to say that MPC, in addition to what Will said, is also sort of like the gold standard for crypto custody tech, right? So like if you're an MPC shop on the crypto custody side, such as Curve, which was acquired by PayPal and several others, that was sort of seen as like, oh, okay, your tech shops are, are, are up there. So anyway, that was just my quick point that I wanted to toss in. But Jen, I wanted to throw it to you. I think from the marketing end and the sort of the consumer acquisition end, is this something that you think dApps are really going to take Coinbase up on? Like outsourcing some of that tech work to say, okay, like wall is a service. You help us with this onboarding. It's a way that may be more comfortable to folks. Do you hear that as sort of like a common pain point with a lot of these emerging Web3 startups? Yeah. So I will tell you, I contribute to Web3 Gaming DAO. We did a survey last year where we talked to like hundreds of developers and wallets was one thing that was this massive, massive pain point for developers who are developing Web3 games. I think that Coinbase, publicly traded company in the States who's just launched a layer two, who has proven that they are thinking about the future of Web3 in the same way that a lot of these developers who are developing dApps are thinking, could win this market share, right? They are regulated, they're a well-known name, they are public, which means they need to publish or reveal their finances every quarter. And so, yes, I think that this is a big, big win for Coinbase. And I think that Coinbase has really shown that they're able to pivot and understand what the industry wants and give the industry what they want. As I was reading the story, I remembered 
to the bull cycle when they were like producing Hollywood films with the Board Ape Yacht Club and that went away real quick and now they're working on solving some real issues. So yes, I do think that people who are building dApps are going are gonna to use this. Zach? Infrastructure. Wow, we went from movies to infrastructure in a matter of months. Right. All right, that's it. Well, uh, Jen, <laughs> okay. you have the next story. Thankfully, it's not about Wyoming, which Will is a known Wyoming hater, but it is also about the Mountain West. So what do you got? Yeah. All right. The Utah state legislator has passed the Utah Dow Act, granting Dow's legal recognition and limited liability protections. Under the new provision, Dow's will be legally framed as Utah LLDs. Will, I'm going to pass this one off to you. Is this a win for Dow's? And are we going to see the Dow's flocking over to Utah? I guess define what a win for DAOs is. I still don't understand the purpose of a DAO at this point because it's been years. There's been so many talks of them, but most of the time it's just like your friends in a group chat and you'll have tokens you allocated to yourself. So I don't really get it. That being said, there are these people who work on DAOs, such as Jensen Assey, and they push DAO legislation to these different legislators in different states. And they seem to be getting stuff done. We saw it in Wyoming a few years ago, and now we're seeing it in Utah. I believe there's something happening in New Hampshire with this as well. The idea is, well, if we can make this group chat with their friends, why not just make it legally protected, sort of like an LLC, but we're all members on this joint charter, and then we can do some investment stuff together. And that's fine. It seems to work pretty well. seems to be a thing. And yeah, I guess that's all I really have thoughts about it because I don't really know where they're going to go with this, right? Like We've seen a few companies, if you could call them that, or Dow spin up with the Wyoming deal. But there hasn't been a ton that are really that notable, right? So I don't know. Jen, I'm going to throw it over to you. Get your thoughts on it. Yeah, I still am making sense on how like state legislator works when there is like no clarity when it comes to federal law, right? And so I read the story and I think about some of the recent legal actions that have been taken against Dow. Uki Dow is the one that I can daze at the top of my head. And Uki Dow was served in their Discord server, right? Making every single contributor of that Dow, meaning anyone who holds a token of that Dow, possibly exposed to legal action. There have been some DAOs after that who've put some funds together as an insurance policy if this were to happen, you know, to lawyer up and help their contributors out. So I think that this is interesting. The act defines ownership of DAOs and protects DAO compliant anonymity through bylaws. There's also some tax stuff that gives these organizations that, like you said, Will, are still trying to figure out how to operate within the legal frameworks of the traditional world, some um, flexibility. Another key point of this is they are putting flexibility and innovation first. I don't know exactly how they're doing that, but that language is used a lot here. So they're willing to work with DAOs to kind of figure out how this law should be iterated on. I don't know, though, how that is going to stop federal regulators from looking at these DAOs and saying, you know, one, is your token a security? Two, like, what are you people doing? Are you paying tax? Is this a company? We don't know how to look at it under any framework. Zach, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I like the geography of this. So, you know, Will, you mentioned Wyoming. We got Utah on the board. We got New Hampshire. There's sort of this like libertarian nexus of states that I think are interested in the concept of like crypto powered exit from society. I read this Vanity Fair piece the other day on the plane. I'm really bullish on it. It's called West of Eden. And Wyoming features prominently, in addition to you know, some key crypto thinkers such as Balaji Srinivasan, the Urbit Project, and other things, about these people who are saying, okay, we can form DAOs, we can use crypto to sort of exit the state, right? And I think that has long been a sort of libertarian fantasy. And now you see state legislatures in Wyoming, now Utah, potentially in New Hampshire, 
sort of giving some legal protection and some legal footing to people who want to establish new organizations such as this. So I think that is actually quite fascinating within the context of the U.S. You know, Jen, you're right to mention sort of the question marks at the federal level as to what protections will actually be available to some of these folks should they set up shop in Utah or Wyoming. But it's going to be interesting to see. It's going to be really interesting to see if any of these take off. It's still early days for sure. All right. Last thoughts, Will. What do you got? I just love your big data energy coming out this morning, hitting the geography subjects hard. Yeah. You got a map yeah. of soil distribution in California behind you. Backwards like, hat on? Just keep Come track. on. You might be in the digital age, Hello. but you are firmly planted in 19th century talking about maps. Hello, Hello young people. That's all I got. That's all good. That's <laughs> all I got. I'm a Steve Buscemi myself. All right. That's it for the show today. I'm Zach. Jen. Will, we're here. We're the hash. We're also on the podcast network. So go check that out. You can get up to speed on the latest crypto crooks from hash contributor David Z. Morris. All right. A lot of good stuff out there. Go read some news and whatnot. We'll talk to you tomorrow, I'm sure. That's it. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive, and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.